Monkey Off My Backlog, the podcast where we expand our pop culture horizons by exploring movies, music, television, and books that are new to us. I'm Tessa. I'm Sam. Joining the family today is Elise. Hi, Elise. Hi. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. I know that our topic today is something that is very near and dear to your heart, but it is completely new to me, or it was before I watched the first two seasons of it. Today, we are talking about the HBO drama, The Sopranos. Now, last week, we talked about the Godfather trilogy, or the Godfather duology plus one, as we discussed last week with Melissa, and we decided that, or rather, Sam decided that It would be good to follow that up with The Sopranos. I have lots of thoughts about how those two things are connected. But first, I wanted to talk about sort of our first impressions on this, my first watch of the first two seasons of The Sopranos and your rewatch. Sam, how many times have you seen this show? Just once. This is the second time. And Elise, you've seen this a few times, right? I've probably seen seasons one and two now like five times. Gotcha. So this is like a big show for you. Just before we get into our discussion very quickly, we are going to talk about first two seasons of The Sopranos. So there will be spoilerific content if you are someone who's new to The Sopranos or hasn't quite gotten to where we are yet. So let's start with you, Elise, since you have watched it several times. What is your previous history with The Sopranos? Why is this a show that you have watched multiple times? Do we have all day? (laughs) (laughs) This is probably my second favorite show after Mad Men, so I'm extra giddy to talk about it. Basically, (laughs) the first season of this show aired, I was in probably my junior, I think it was January 99, so I was in my junior year of high school. Um, I did not watch it then. My dad watched it probably from the beginning, because we actually, I was really lucky, and we grew up in a house that had HBO for, oh, like, I don't remember us not having it, and this was one of the first big, like, drama shows that they had. I didn't get into it until a few years later. I was at college and my good friend Julie, who is Italian-American, and like my other girlfriends were were all watching it. And I think right before season four, season four was September of 2002. So I think the summer before that year of college, I like binged seasons one through three on my dad's DVDs. Um, So I watched season four live. That was the first time I was like watching the show live. I think one of the reasons that I come back to the show so often is because I find comfort in the characters acting like themselves and acting in ways I expect them to. And while obviously the first time you watch something, you don't want it to be boring and everything to be expected. But there's some there's just comfort in coming back and like the same things happen again and it's just the jokes are still funny to me years later this show is just the epitome of new jersey which is where i'm from people talk like this i mean obviously this show is has dialogue in it that can be very offensive and they make a lot of jokes in it that are not funny really And I think for me, the comedy comes in the fact that these people that are talking like this are not shown as cool. At least I read it that way. Like it's, it almost feels like it's a commentary on them 
being so ignorant and making comments that are that could be shitty. So like when I say it's funny, I don't mean like, oh, the homophobic jokes are funny. I mean, like the characters are idiots. And that's funny to me. The locations in the show are real. Like they talk about Fountains of Wayne in season one. Like that's a real place <laughs> that the band the band is named after, actually. In season two, you have that Ramsey outdoor store. That is a real place. The strip club, the Bada Bing, was actually a real strip club called Satin Dolls. I used to pass it on my way to college um, all the time. So it just feels very New Jersey. The sarcasm in the show is very New Jersey. And I always really related early on to, to Meadow because she, like, the way that she talks back to her parents, it's like every kid wanted to, like, talk back to their parents like that. But also... I wouldn't have. Not that much, anyway. No, it just I think all we feels... determined that you and Meadow are the same age. Yeah, I think we are the same age, actually. I thought it was a year apart, but, like, we're basically the same age. Well, because we were... This is just skipping ahead a little bit. We were watching the episode where she gets, like, some college acceptance letters, and it says, like, mm-hmm. or entering school in the fall of 2000. Was that the year and that you... Yes. Yes, that's okay. The year, that's when I went to school, also, uh, fall of 2000. When I went to school the first time. <laughs> I, I also want to backtrack real fast. You haven't heard this yet, but since you brought it up, I, I do want to point out, again, we talk a lot about, on the Godfather episode, about Sofia Coppola in Godfather 3. And what I said at the time was that, and and her name is Lydia. That's Winona Ryder's character in Beetlejuice, right? Mm-hmm. I don't see Winona Ryder as... Michael Corleone's son. I see Sofia Coppola as her son because she reads just like Meadow Soprano. Like a like a more sexed up version of Meadow. Like the whole whiny I'm a high school kid. Winona Ryder would not have brought that energy. And that's a different ev- Gen X energy. Well, right, but everything <laughs> that you're saying about about that talking back, that that actual lived in thing. That makes way more sense. And Sofia Coppola nails that. So anyway, that's what I said on the episode is that those two are a better point of comparison. Meadow and Meadow and, and Sofia Coppola as Mary. Yes. I've still not seen um, Godfather 3 and I have not seen 1 and 2 in quite some time. I probably will watch them next week. In general, just the show feels so lived in. There's a lot of scenes with Tony and Carmela where they're not even speaking. They're just acting like she makes him a plate of food. He does this, that and the other thing. And it's just it's so comfortable and it feels so real. And you you believe that they're married for 18 years. We talked about that this morning. Tessa and I did. I actually mentioned that to her. You know, toward the end of season two, of course, I know what happens later. But, you know, at the end of season two, you see her thinking about the issue of staying within the marriage or not. And my thought on that was that, as you said, they're lived in. There's kind of a security there where they don't have to say things. You know, they'll have half of a conversation and the implications of that conversation don't need to be said. What really got me thinking about it specifically when she when Carmela calls their mom's house and Tony's mm-hmm. actually there and then she just hangs up. Nothing needs to be said. You know exactly what she's thinking, what decision she's making there. And it's as you said, it's because they're lived in I uh, I think it's a little bit because of Catholicism too, but Yeah, Catholicism plays a big role in this. Um 
as it also general. does on The Godfather, <laughs> which we talked about last week as well. And even even though I, I'm Jewish, uh, most of my friends growing up were Catholic. And so those the family, I don't mean the mob part, the mob family part, but the family dynamics feel very familiar to me in that respect as well. With just how my parent, my friend's parents would talk about church and family and stuff like that. It just all feels very familiar to me. Sam, what is your history with this show? You've only seen it once before, so this is your second watch through. What's your relationship with this show the first time that you watched it? And how is coming back to it now? Okay, so the first thing is I want to back up a little bit before we talk about, before I talk about The Sopranos in detail. And on the Discord, we were talking about a little bit about The Sopranos, I think it was yesterday, and our producer, Ryan, made a comment about HBO, which is, of course, the, the pay TV thing that Zaslav's trying to destroy that was and is the home <laughs> of The Sopranos. The implication was, why would you subscribe to HBO if you weren't watching The Sopranos? And he wasn't watching The Sopranos. So, you know, it's similar to what Game of Thrones was, at least in the earlier seasons. But when I was growing up, that was the beginning of HBO, or as we called it, home box office. (laughs) Pay TV. I mean, you know, a lot of people didn't really even have cable at that point still. It was still fairly new-ish. I mean, I grew up with it, so I mean, but I I know enough to know that it was still pretty new at that point. And so the idea of pay cable was something on top of, it's a hat on a hat, basically. It is privilege. It is wealth, right? And we didn't have it. Or I had things that were taped on VHS that were acquired on those free preview weekends where they would try to hook you to Disney Or HBO, presumably Showtime, whenever it showed up. Showtime did that a lot, actually. They all did. I mean, and they still do um, on on other providers. And and HBO did have a couple of uh, original programs. So The Sopranos was a really big deal. Oz before that was also a thing. And lost alum Harold Perrineau. I was shocked to find that out, by the way, that... That where he what what everybody knew him for, which was Oz. Anyway, so I didn't watch The Sopranos in the beginning, and when I was out on my own, which I was by the time you started watching it, at least I couldn't afford HBO. And I think about the fact that fifteen dollars a month was something I couldn't afford, and I have real thoughts about that. But I think that really does tell you something too about people around my age or perhaps a little bit younger that have you seen The Sopranos is definitely a class marker. It is, are you affluent enough to access The Sopranos? Oh, and totally. I, will, I will say that the rise of BitTorrenting definitely democratized HBO shows. Game of Thrones, of course, was the most downloaded show on BitTorrent back yeah, when we was. still BitTorrented. <laughs> uh, not that I ever did that. I, 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 I oh, would never. never. No one's accusing I would you never. of anything. <laughs> uh, but the point is, The point is, I didn't really get access to The Sopranos until I moved into an apartment complex that had cable, and you just had to pay for it, but at least it came with HBO. Right. It's like when you go to a hotel that has HBO or something, it's just included. Yes. I won't even tell you about early model TiVos that had manual recording and how (laughs) I would turn something on demand and just hit record so I could watch it later. TV used to be so hard, Zaslav. Why are you making it hard for us again? (laughs) 
I don't want to fucking watch Westworld on freebie. You asshole. Anyway, Fast Channel's my ass. When did I start watching The Sopranos? I'm not actually sure. I'm not sure if I started watching it in the 15-month gap between, what is it? Is it four and five that had the 15-month gap? Yeah. Or the year gap between the first half of season six and the second half, which were big cultural markers, right? And it was Mm -hmm. like, oh, we're suffering to wait 15 months between a show. First of all, cultural marker. Second, hold my 2020 beer. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting coming to a show late and really catching up on the cultural discourse, which is very much what The Sopranos was. The way TV has changed, I don't think there was a more talked about show after Lost and The Sopranos. I think Sopranos was the most talked about, Lost became the most talked about, and then faded off the map by the end. It had shed a lot of viewers. Sopranos, I think, only grew, and I don't think we see that again until Game of Thrones. I, I don't think Mad Men or Breaking Bad, The Shield... The Wire, any of the difficult men shows really stood up to where The Sopranos stood. I mean, Breaking Bad is the best one. I will say that, and I will stand by that. I like The Shield. The Shield may be my second favorite, even before The Sopranos. That is the comprehensive and full history of my history with The Sopranos. (laughs) This is my week for a monkey. As we've talked about earlier, I resisted watching the show for so long, I think, one, because I'm, I'm younger than both of you. And so and my family did not have television growing up. We did not have cable. We watched things on DVDs and then later on DVDs from Netflix. That's like or, you know, something that we had either films or random seasons of random old shows. And so like that's that's what I grew up on because my mom was anti-television. It's a whole long story anyway. So I didn't even know what HBO was until I was a teenager. And for me, this would have come out when I was about nine, eight or nine when the first season is when it would have aired. And so like I just wasn't the right age or in the right context to know about this show. And then after that, I think I resisted it for a really long time. And I think I talked about this a couple of years ago on Monkey when we had a guest who talked about The Sopranos a little bit. I actually really don't jive, I guess, with shows that are about difficult or bad men. I talked about this a little bit on The Godfather too, which is why I am a little resistant to mob stories is because a lot of times it's about like, oh, here are all these men. They're bad. They're doing bad things. Let's talk about how psychologically complex they are, which is a perfectly valid thing to talk about. I'm not trying to say that people shouldn't enjoy those shows or or anything like that. It's just that there's such been such a glut of them that to me, it's just kind of like, oh, another show about a, a difficult man. But I have enjoyed you know, some of them, like I watched a lot of Mad Men. I watched, I did not watch Breaking Bad or Better Call Saul, but I've watched a few of them. And this one was just- I haven't watched those either. So this one was just like, for a long time, I was like, well, that's the first one. Like that was one of the first shows that really did this. And I'm just not really interested in that kind of storytelling. Again, I talked about this a little bit last week, so I won't go over um, some of my reasons for that. 
But, you know, people do talk about it a lot. And I know it's one of your favorite shows. And Sam's been talking about it for a long time. A lot of people have said, yeah, but it was doing this before everyone was doing it. And there are these uh, women in the show that do have legitimately developed storylines, which I don't think is always the case in these types of shows. And so I was I I did come around to the idea of watching it. And I am glad that I did. And I want to talk about that um, here in a little bit. But I also want to say I'm glad that I watched this after watching The Godfather. Like, I I was a little worried this would be too much mob content for me at the beginning of the year, but there are ways in which these two things, these two texts are talking to each other, and so I'm really happy that I was able to see the beginning of the conversation before I saw the next step in this conversation. So that works for, this works for me. I do, I want to add really quickly, so I I do want to plug, because I think it's a really great book, Uh, it's called Difficult Men, and it's by Brett Martin, and the the subtitle of the book is Behind the Scenes of a Creative Revolution, From the Sopranos and the Wire to Mad Men and Breaking Bad, and what's really great about it is that uh, Martin, the author, does a does a neat job of really talking about how David Chase is reacting to the CSI's and the the hospital shows ER Chicago Hope you know kind of procedural soapy things and saying there's a there's stories not being told here and you know that is what David Simon did uh that's what uh Ryan Murphy did the other Ryan whose whose first name I can't remember who did the shield and then you know Vince Gilligan comes along a little bit later and how these shows and Matthew Weiner and these shows are happening at the same time that another revolution in TV is happening, which is why it's called the, the Golden Age. Because you have these for dramas, and then you have The Office, and 30 Rock, and Arrested Development. You have comedy being, you know, the half-hour comedy being revolutionized at the same time that these, these difficult men are being written. And so it, there's a lot going on during this time period, too. And it's almost like what I said about the Godfather, this, are you watching a movie or are you watching film history? Right. You know, and that's what Melissa had a lot to say about too. And that's part of what watching the Sopranos and breaking bad in any of those shows also means. Uh, uh, he also talks about rescue me. That was also a nine 11 show, which I watched uh, Sop- a little bit of that one. The Sopranos becomes a nine 11 show in some ways too. Um, a lot because of little Stevens uh, influence. Van Zant, that's actually his last name. It would feel wrong for them not to be because of where the show's taking right. place also in present it's in present day at the time. So it just that would be a weird thing to ignore, I feel like. Well, and part of it is that the Godfather does this too, obviously, but the Sopranos, the the actual family, but also the the family family, they see themselves as patriotic Americans. Yeah. Tony has that speech at some point about how they needed, you know, the people who settled this country needed cheap labor to build all their things. And so they they wanted these people, you know, Italians to come over and Italians were just they didn't want to give up their cultural heritage. And, and they figured out how to how to work the system. And that's if that's not American, then then what is which I think is a fair point. And this brings us to segment two, which is talking about sort of the premise of the show, the themes of the show, 
And I'm really glad that you brought up that speech because I think there's so much to unpack there. This is a speech that happens near the end of season two between Tony and Jennifer Melfi, his therapist. But I, this kind of continues some of the conversations that we had about The Godfather, where we talked about how the 20th century really sees this shift in so many ways when it comes to certain cultures that were not considered white at the beginning of the 20th century. And then they sort of shift within the the cultural conversations towards whiteness in a lot of ways. And Italian Americans, I think, I mean, also Irish, also Jewish people, also, you know, there there's a whole list. Also Czech people, which is, are my people. That's where uh, my family comes from. Um, they were not considered white really either. But they there's this shift between like where they were and then where they are now, which is considered more white than other people who have immigrated to this country. And so it, there is this really interesting conversation about the changing identity of Italian-Americans, which The Godfather starts and which The Sopranos really leans into. Of course, The Godfather, the last film is set in the 70s. And this, as you pointed out, is set at the time contemporary in the late 90s, early aughts. The question that this show is asking is, are they really outsiders anymore? Like, what does it mean to be an outsider as an Italian-American in the 90s now? Are they white? Are they not white? Are they somewhere, some third category? You know, does the mob make them less white? You know, um, we get all of these arguments about, in the show, about, like, assimilation, right? Um, Melfi's husband brings this up quite a bit. Like, this is what gives Italian-Americans a bad name. Um, or not assimilation. And I think the speech that Tony gives is really interesting because, as you said, Sam, he sees himself and his family as patriotic Americans. But even in that speech, he's making a distinction between Italian-Americans and Americans. And by Americans, he means white people. And it's very, very obvious in the way that he says, right, the Americans needed us to to build their cities. And he mentions Rockefeller and all of these like very rich people he compares them to actually being mobsters as well, basically. Like, yes, they're the legitimate ones, but what they're doing is the same as what we're doing. We just wanted to preserve our culture and to be independent and to not you know, have to rely on them as much. So my question is, what do we think about how these questions are explored in this show? And this is a conversation that I've had with my mom a lot. Um, we're, we're Jewish, and I think... I don't, I'm not... You know, she's probably not going to listen to this, but like we had a conversation within the last few years about whether we were white or not. Like that is a conversation we have had in this household. And I explained to my mom that we definitely are. And I think a lot of the Italian, Irish, these cultures being considered not white comes from being oppressed by other people. And it's the same thing with, like, are we not white because the Nazis said that? Or are we not white because we're not white? And I think that there's something interesting in are we something just because the people that are oppressing us are calling us this? And maybe the, you know, language changes over time. (laughs) So I feel like even in the past saying these people aren't white, I don't know that they meant the same thing as what we would say now in America for what white, being white is. So I I think that definitions change, and I also think it depends on who's using the, the terminology. So I, I personally don't think that Italian-Americans are not white. I mean, unless you're, like, a black person or a Latina person. Like, there's, you know, if... 
I right. think white. I guess we, sh- we should probably clarify that there are black Jewish people and yes, black Italian exactly. Americans. So for me, I would say that these terms are based on race, not on where you were born. But I that doesn't mean that cultures are not oppressed or treated poorly because of the, their heritage. So I feel that it's also a generational thing. But I do like that in this show, I mean, we see it most, I think, when when Melfi is with her family, her her ex-husband is going on, and you mentioned that her husband is constantly talking about how Italian-American criminals are making the rest of them look bad and all this other stuff. From someone who was living in this area in the 1990s when this show was taking place... Italian-Americans were, I don't think, were considered as outsiders as they might, as, as like, maybe Tony's parents' generation might have. Like, I, I think that they're holding on to that, which is, I'm not taking that away from them, but I don't know that it was, there had been progress, is, is all I'll say. As a complete outsider, Elise, I think the racial question you know, for, for folks who are Jewish is probably a lot different because there's a whole bunch of different circumstances and, you know, it's really hard to, you know, when, when somebody tries to get rid of everybody, you know, it's, it changes that, that the complexion of, of what that is. And yeah, it's not black and white for sure. No, it's not. And, and, but, but, and, and I, and I say that just because I think it is a little bit more black and white for for um and again this is somebody like i can tell you where my family came from i know i know how long my dad's family has been here i know when my mom's family immigrated mm-hmm. i know who has roots in the country i know who has who doesn't i i like to the two stories i like to tell is that i am a direct descendant of somebody directly responsible for getting ulysses s grant to west point and I also found out to my horror after bagging on Canadian people for the first part of my life, my one of my great grandmothers was not French, but French Canadian. <laughs> and most likely, as my dad says, an illegal immigrant because they're all in upstate New York. So obviously, also having a little Middle Eastern in me, it's it's all fun, right? But that's that. all that's it is. But there's no stakes to it for me. I don't care. It doesn't matter. On the yeah, other hand, I don't hand, care about that either. Right. But you know, some people do. You know, Tessa's co host on Nanny Ogg's book club, our buddy Nigel, is Irish. The people who claim they're Irish here are not. And I hate it. As Tony, uh, no, it's not Tony, it's Christopher. As Christopher says, hell is an Irish pub. We're at St. Patrick's Day every day. <laughs> oh my God, I love that. I find the, the conversation about cultural heritage interesting. Does it inform or define you? And I find it dishonest. But I'm not gatekeeper. I, you know, that's the thing. I don't really know. All I do know is there are people who live in this country whose race defines them Every day, especially being from the South, I know what that's like. And I see it as an outsider and I think I'm not going to get on this myself, you know, 
and because that's stupid. And I'm not saying that, you know, Italian Americans don't have some claim to that or it have or if they have any claim it's more than I do. I they certainly do. But what I think is really interesting about the whole debate in the Sopranos about the discussion about what does Italian American mean? Who's American, who's not? Is I once again I go back and I'm sorry I bring it, I'm not actually sorry. I bring it up in every episode. <laughs> but more people need to be watching Yellowstone. Because I almost started it recently because of you. <laughs> Ryan has said the best thing to me about Yellowstone that anybody can ever say. It's either really nuanced or really stupid. <laughs> <laughs> but the conversation here, the connection is is actually pretty simple. When you stop trying to make a big deal out of your identity. Well, you know, these indigenous people have had a hard time, but I've also had my struggles. No, you haven't. You're a white dude. Get over it. And as soon as you stop talking about it, you can start talking about the real problems, which are what does it mean to be a landowner of land that was taken away from these people? What does that actually mean? If you acknowledge that that you don't have the 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 first right to this land, where does that get you? It gets you to a more nuanced place. It gets you to a place closer to what Tony tries to say in these conversations, which is we have a right to be here as much as anybody else does. And who who has the right to come in and say we protected ourselves? by building up these systems. And you want us to just tear these systems down because they're illegal now, because you decided you want to prosecute? How are you going to keep us safe? You won't. And and that's a much better question than the one about heritage. It's one about reality. And I think that's much I think that's a much better conversation than saying my great 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 grandparent was Irish and they were persecuted, therefore I am too. No, you're not you both kind of talked about a couple things that made me think of this. I did want to bring up that episode. Is it in the first season or the second season where they, the, the gangster rapper <laughs> comes and asks that for rap- basically season one, season one basically season comes. One. So Hesh is a, he's a, he was a music producer. I'm not completely sure what his title is in Tony's organization, it's interesting to talk about how music was connected with the mob, which they talk about a lot in that episode, especially with uh, Christopher and Adriana. But he gets asked for reparations by this person who basically says, you owe this woman who is the widow of your partner and who is black $400,000 because you got a a share of the royalties that, that this other person did not get. And... There's a lot in this conversation that's very interesting because Hesh, you know, is white. He is Jewish, but he is white. And he, his first counter to this is to say, well, Jewish people have been persecuted longer than you have, which is not true, but that's a whole other issue. And then his second response is to, he's thinking about it and I think at first they're surprised at how low the ask actually is because you think he's going to say like, oh, we want like half your business or whatever. But he just says, no, she just wants $400,000. Like that is what we've calculated that you owe her. And there's this moment though, and it took me a while to realize what was happening where he sits down 
and he's thinking about like he's thinking about his life and like his career and he looks at all these pictures of all these musicians on the wall that he's helped with helped and he realizes that almost all of them are black and you, you there's nothing said here it's just this moment of realization where he realizes all these musicians are black and if he pays one of them they're all going to come after him because he screwed them all over at some point. And like, it is a really interesting indictment of the music industry and the fact that the music industry really exploited black musicians. But it is also this really interesting question about like these mobsters and the Italian Americans and this Jewish man are trying to play the oppression Olympics with black Americans and black musicians And I think what the show is trying to say is that ultimately that doesn't help anyone. Ultimately, it's very damaging to everyone involved. I was wondering if you all had any thoughts about that. I I also wanted to say that um, Hesh is a loan shark and that is probably oh, how okay. he's involved. He has like a yeah. side <laughs> business and um, he was friends with Tony's dad. I think the show is correct in saying that these competitions these suffering competitions are not helpful to anyone it's better if we just all support each other in trying to not <laughs> oppress anyone at for, part of me cringes at the scene because i know so many people that would act or say what what hesh says in it and it just like i mean he uses a slur and basically you know as you said he's he basically is like you know it's he's he is completely wrong in what he says to him. So you can look at the other shows that are happening around this time and masculinity is the thing that we want we care about, which is actually one thing that happens when these creators want to talk about these things, they want to purposely not have other conversations. So you look at Sean Ryan who creates this great not a good he's not a good person but a great character Vic Mackey on the shield who will basically tell oh it's, his name is Julian that's the character Vic Mackey tells Julian I believe his name he's a cop and he's black he all but actually literally just tells him I don't care that you're black it's the fact that you're gay that I hate right because it's a masculinity issue and it's this weird kind of like it's this neoliberal fever dream of race and identity. The same thing with Vince Gilligan when he creates Breaking Bad. Walter White is not invested in the ideas of the race of the people that he, races of people he interacts with. It's much more about how he was treated unfairly because when he had cancer, he couldn't afford treatment. It wasn't of course it was, but but he would say it wasn't about whiteness. It was about the unfairness of the healthcare system. Vic Mackey would say it's not about race. It's about I'm trying to be a man. On Nip Tuck, you know, it was about it was about making money. It was like, what do you want to look like? What do you want to change? We don't care. We'll we'll do it. We're plastic surgeons. The point is, all of these shows, including The Sopranos, are having different conversations. And having more, trying to have more, I'm not saying they're successful, but they're trying to have more nuanced conversations other than, as you say, the traditional, the more traditional 
oppression Olympics because that's not a helpful way to have a conversation. No. And I will I do have to say a lot of the characters on here are very racist and they seem to excuse their racism by hiding behind their identity as Italian Americans, right? Like this idea of, oh well we're oppressed. So, you know, we can say things about black people that whatever we want. We can say things about Asian people or Indian people and it's fine, right? Because we were here and we were oppressed. Although, again, like you said, I'm not sure Tony Soprano was as personally oppressed as perhaps his father or his grandfather was. Um, so that's yeah. also a very interesting conversation about how that oppression can get handed down, but also kind of used in ways that aren't good. Yeah, I, it reminds me of a tweet I saw this week, and I'm sorry to whoever wrote this, but it basically... It basically was a commentary on how after the uh, Black Lives Matter protest of the summer of 2020 happened, a lot of white liberals started identifying in different ways that would, like, help them also have excuses or, like, reasons to complain about their oppression. And I don't mean that, like, for people that actually have been oppressed. I just meant, like, these... People grasped on to things in the same way to be like, oh, well, I was oppressed too. And okay, but that's not what we're talking about right now. We're talking about black lives, like, et cetera, et cetera. Quick word before we move on about Tony Soprano and tradition. Who day and night must scramble for a living, feed the wife and children, say his daily prayers, and who has the right as master of the house to have the final word at home? (laughs) The Papa's tradition. You watched Villa on the Roof two years ago, and you just want to like work that into everything. Now. There were ja- hey, everybody listening, there was jazz hands. <laughs> I never saw Fiddler on the Roof, which is probably a crime against my um, my background. Uh, I'm against your tradition. The Jewish community. <laughs> um, <laughs> But I will say that we had that song specifically play at my bat mitzvah when my grandfather came up to do like the candle lighting ceremony with me. So I'm familiar. (laughs) I really like that Sam brought up the idea of masculinity because that is also a huge part of the show, which Alicia, I know that you have a lot to say about this as well. But yeah, there's two things going on here. There's this idea of them trying to be masculine and to be men, right? And there is a lot of that toxicity that gets talked about in the show. But the other issue at stake does have very much to do with the Italian-American identity because the way that Italian-Americans often perform masculinity is very different than the way that white Americans perform masculinity. This is something that came up in The Godfather as well, especially Godfather Part Two, when the white senator is like, I don't like all you Italian men with your slick back hair and your, you know, like he describes something that is very much a performance of masculinity. And so I think both those things are at stake here, right? It's both like, I want to be a man like Gary Cooper, but I also perform masculinity in a way that's not seen as masculine by certain dominant forms of society. So like, you know, there's the the cheek kissing and the hugging and the, you know, like the the certain ways of dressing. And so constantly saying they love each other like the guys. Oh, yeah. Which is great, by the way. Like, I wish I know I love it. I wish more people would do this. But anyway, what were some of your ideas about what masculinity means in The Sopranos? It certainly doesn't mean eating pussy. (laughs) (laughs) 
How would that even translate? Yeah, that's my favorite part. How would that even <laughs> that translate? That line is so funny. I, I, I will say that storyline makes me so sad and I feel so bad for that woman, Bobby, because she's so happy and then it just gets ruined. Cunnilingus and psychiatry. This, that's what started this whole thing. <laughs> that's the best line. This whole, this whole show to me is like about gender expression. I, I think the Catholicism comes into play here, too, in regards to gender roles, like, in the house, specifically. And, like, you know, the man takes care of the family and supports everyone, and the wife makes the makes the uh, house a home and cooks dinner and, and that whole bit. Like, they have very traditional family roles. I mean, Carmela talks about going away after... Meadows graduation for three weeks and Tony's like how's it gonna look you going away for three weeks without me like I feel like also in 2023 like no one is gonna care about that but in the 90s like I can't imagine my mom have gone on vacation without my dad like I know a lot of couples do that and some my parents even were friends with but I just feel like that is so foreign to like how I grew up but I wanted to talk a little bit and I didn't want Tessa to read this yet because there are things that happen later. But there's this um, article that came out, I think it was maybe last year in uh, Mel Magazine. Basically, it's titled The Sopranos Belongs to the Gays Now. And it talks about how this show is all about gender expression and specifically gender essentialism. Everyone has to fall within this exact box and because of that, it almost comes off campy in a way. Like, it, it's so over the top. And as you guys discussed with Matt, us queers love camp. So it just feels <laughs> like it's almost come around on because it's so, it's so much that it's put on so much that I, I, it helps in the, this is a character, this is an analysis of this rather than a promote, like, it's not saying that this is all good. And I think that is right. a very important thing to, I'm not, I know some people wouldn't want to watch this because it would be upsetting, even if it's not an en- endorsement, that's the word I was looking for, even though it's not an endorsement of this behavior, um, and I totally get that. And it's like how you, Tessa, said that you were not interested in watching this for a long time. And I think that that is completely valid. But for me, the fact that the show is not endorsing these activities is part of what why it all works for me. The only thing I want to say on this topic of gender essentialism is that Drea De Mateo is doing God's work. And I salute you, ma'am. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about the women characters, though, because while this show is a lot about masculinity, there are many more dynamic women in this show, even in the first two seasons, than there are in the whole of the Godfather trilogy. You have Carmela, you have Dr. Melfi, you have Livia and Meadow, and I want to talk about them as characters later. But what do we think the show is trying to say about femininity and what it means to be a woman in this life? I think it's along with the men are acting in a certain way to project their masculinity. The men are also expecting their women to act a certain way um, to be feminine. And I think a lot of the ways in which Carmela and Meadow 
act or are supposed to act is like almost put on on them. But at the same time, and we see Carmela grapple with this and we, we'll talk about it later, I feel like she is basically a willing participant in this and she wants to be a good Catholic wife. She wants to take care of her family. Obviously, she's uncomfortable with, at times, uncomfortable with how they are making money, but I think she likes the life too much, so it doesn't matter. Um, not that it doesn't matter, but she almost has to create her own ways of manipulation to work within this society. You know, very right, probably in the first episode, and it gets brought up specifically at some point in the first season, is the Madonna whore duality, right? Yes. I think it was in season two because Janice said it. Of course it was Janice. We see very early on that Tony's got his wife and his guma, and one is the Madonna and one is the whore. And at the very end of season two, in the last two episodes, we definitely get just a little bit about what it means when the whore wants to be the Madonna. But we spend a lot of time with, with Carmela and Dr. Melfi, who are... The Madonnas of the show. They are to Tony. The There's actually three, but they have very similar trying to work being that expected other side of the duality, which Dr. Melfi puts herself in with Tony. She breaks that professional boundary, and that's a lot of what her own therapy's about. But Carmela and Jennifer are both trying to navigate that expectation versus the reality. Livia is also a Madonna, but because we don't want to think about her sexual, especially Tony, doesn't want to think about her in that way. But, you know, it's actually interesting being a borderline personality. Having borderline personality disorder is actually more acceptable for a Madonna than it would be for a, right. for a whore. Yeah. And that to me is fascinating, having having family history with very imposing women as head of the family. And but then the other thing is when you see Meadow and Adriana, by the way, are both Janice is something else. I entirely I don't know. But but Meadow Tony doesn't want her to be part of that duality. He knows on some level that that duality is wrong because that's not what he wants from his daughter. He wants his daughter to be whoever she wants to be, as long as it's acceptable to him. Right, yeah, as long as it's not going correctly. He doesn't doesn't (laughs) want her to go to, which by the way, I'm sorry, I'm going to say this. He doesn't want her to go to Berkeley and become a fudge packer, which once again... How does that even translate? <laughs> Sounds pretty straight to me, actually. Well, I mean, but that's the whole point. I mean, that's the whole thing about the problems that, that Tony and his buddies have against being gay, right? There's no nuance there. If you're gay, you're bad. So anyway, but then Adriana, to me, is the most interesting in this duality because Adriana wants to be both. She does. It's yeah. not, she doesn't want to work outside of the system. She wants to be both. She thinks I should be able to be like Carmela. I should be able to dress like this because I look good, which she does. And she should be able to be a music manager. 
She ought to be able to do all of those things. She wants a career, and I, even though Christopher dissuades, tries to dissuade her, he doesn't try to do that as much as Tony would do that if it was Carmela. Okay, quick question, though, Elise. Does Christopher know, like consciously, does he know that Adriana is more competent than he is? I think so. I mean, because she is. It's just the question of does he know that? I think he... I think he's a dummy most of the time. Yeah. But I also feel that he acts out against her because he does know that. That's exactly it. I mean, the slap, the whine, all the things that he does to her are just from that. Just from feeling like he's being shown up, which he is. But it's not not done on purpose. It's just easy. The fact that this, this is a New Jersey mob, which I think is very important because... In The Godfather, it's very much about the New York mob, even when they're not actually in New York anymore. It's still very much about the New York mob. And I think a lot of stories about the mob are about the New York mob. And this is very much, like you said, Elise, a New Jersey story. It's very rooted in New Jersey in both the locations. It's rooted in New Jersey by like the cultural landmarks and all of those Mm -hmm. things. How do we feel like that changes the story? How does that impact the mob narrative that at this point had been really a big part of American culture for thirty around 30 years? I don't know enough about the real mob to know if what I'm saying is true. But because they show this New Jersey group kind of being somewhat of an offshoot of the New York mob. Like they obviously deal with those people and, and such. I wonder if it lends to being able to tell more stories because it might seem further from reality. I don't know. They almost come off as like the little sister to like the New York mob in this at first. Well, they report to like, a branch of the mob, right? Like Tony is the boss of the mob in New Jersey, but it's North, like North Jersey. North Jersey. North Jersey. Right. But it it seems like he answers to or has like a a slightly subordinate relationship with one of the the mob members in New York. Yeah, like like Johnny Sack and we haven't met more of the New York mob yet, but like he works for the the New York mob and I feel like I don't know if Tony has to like report to them but he probably checks with them on bigger issues like anytime there was like a should we kill this person or that person I feel like and with if it wasn't just within Tony's crew then they would like check in to be like is this all right Or, like, what do you think about this? That's a big part of the struggle in season one between Uncle Junior and Tony is that Uncle Junior has a lot of friends in New York. And so, like, that's a big... Yeah. He has to be careful with the way he handles Uncle Junior because of his connections. Just a quick mea culpa here, which I think is appropriate because I outed myself as not a lapsed Catholic. There's lapsed Catholics and there's me all the way over there. But... (laughs) So... In my head, the gang that couldn't shoot straight is a Western. It isn't. It actually comes up in these episodes that we watched. It's a De Niro movie. So it is actually appropriate to call this North Jersey soprano operation the gang that couldn't shoot straight. 
because that is a direct homage to the mob, but it's also accurate. You don't really see the incompetence. That shows up in later seasons. You don't really get... And that is a spoiler for later seasons. These people are not good at what they do. I mean, I think it's there even now. It's there, but it doesn't become emphasized until later because David Chase is very concerned with, in the first season, building the world. And then, in this, you know, it's the classic thing. The first season builds the world. The second season expands the characters and what you know about them. And then in season three, whatever story it is you wanted to tell, get going, man, because Netflix will cancel you. Wait, sorry, that's just Netflix. <laughs> but that's the thing. I mean, so it's it's really appropriate. So you're really starting to see that world get built out. But as you said, it's there if you start to look for it. Is is that that is really the true relationship? You know the the North Jersey mob is, is basically the fuck up sibling <laughs> for New York. I mean, I would say yeah. that rather than well, yeah, they're less <laughs> slick. They're they're more like rough. You know, it's not and like and, there's a lot of Sil's, glamour in The Godfather, right? right? Well, Sill's impression of Marco Corleone is not good. Oh yeah, no, and that's no, what you need to know. But but it makes him happy. Like you know. <laughs> I know I called New Jersey the little sister, but now I'm thinking they're the older sister because they're like the Janice of uh, the <laughs> Two other things before we get into the characters. One, I definitely wanted to touch on the soundtrack to this show, which you mentioned in the notes, Elise. It is wonderful and it just gets better. And between this and Matrix Resurrections, I think White Rabbit by Jefferson Airplane. They were Airplane when they did white rabbit yes, they were uh, correct that that is like resurrected itself in my in my playlist but there's a lot of classic rock in this as well as other things as well what are some of our favorite soundtrack moments in this so far my absolute favorite one has not happened yet but it i think it happens in the actually the next episode that we were going to watch which one is that by the way my favorite music thing it's the um world destruction Hmm. I forget who sings that, but I love that they end this one one episode with Cake's Frank Sinatra. Journeys the Wheel in the Sky Keeps on Turning is a song that, because of this show, like was brought back into my life. This is a lot of the music that I grew up with. And the, in the sh- I find the soundtrack unparalleled, but I love how it's both like within the show and for the audience. So like there's times where it's just, you know, playing for us to hear and then there's other times where they'll just have the radio on and like Tony will be singing in the car which I think is something that happens throughout the whole show like Tony's listening to the radio singing in the car or when those guys were coming over to do the wallpaper in the house they had on the radio Q1043 is like the classic rock station in this area so like that that was another aspect that helps make this show feel like home to me there's too many but yeah my favorite one hasn't happened yet but probably cake um frank sinatra sam you mentioned the radio station too did you know it was a real station doesn't surprise me what steven van zant's on this show nothing surprises me about that (laughs) i mean also carmella is listening to like adult contemporary yeah when she gets horny for the for the wallpaper guy she switches to aor real fast but she also listens to that like Andre Bocelli song a lot. 
Yeah. And it's very... And that song actually makes... And there's the one scene where the song is on and they're at, they're at like, lunch and Rosalie starts crying because she's thinking about her late husband and Angie's there talking about how angry she is about Sal because he left and came back and, like... It's funny because I didn't grow up with that song, but it means something to me now because of this show. Like, that song is familiar to me because of this show. Bob Dylan's You Gotta Serve Somebody comes on in one episode, and it's diegetic, like you said, um, and it's just very... It's it's very interesting, the meaning that song takes on as Tony's listening to it and thinking about the issues that he's having with different members of his organization. Just really quickly, these aren't. This is not in what we saw, mm-hmm. but I know Elise knows what I'm talking about. I just want to say before Glee, mashups were special, and there are two mashups that I just think are great. The first one is one that will show up in The Sopranos. It's a mashup of Every Breath You Take and Peter Gunn, the theme from Peter Gunn. It's the first track on Peppers and Eggs. Yeah. And then the second one is about her in Kill Bill 2, which is a mashup of She's Not There by the Zombies and St. Louis Blues by Bessie Smith. It happens at the end of Kill Bill 2. Those are both vibes. They're actually the same vibe, just about, <laughs> for the record. And it actually made me remember, too, the Take Me to the River uh, mm-hmm. meme that happened with the Sopranos because of the fish. Yeah. And we start to see a little bit of that in Funhouse. Also, I li- I lied. World Destruction is in the season premiere of season four. The last thing I wanted to say under themes and and you know the kind of the overarching things in the show is food. We talked about food just a little bit in The Godfather. That theme in The Godfather was cranked up to an eleven in The Sopranos. Every single interaction between characters usually involves food. Either someone's giving someone else food or they're sharing a meal or they're talking about food. They're, and it's a very much, it's very Italian-American food. It's it hardly some ever. Some gravy and some macaroni. Some gravy and some macaroni, yeah. <laughs> um, which, by the way, that's just, we're not, I don't want to really get into this, but the fact that they even go to Italy for an episode halfway through season two is very The Godfather because you can't have yeah, a Godfather film is. without them going to Italy. So yeah, it, it is very interesting the ways, and it's not, Americanized Italian food. It's very no, much it's like like stuff that I'd never heard of before, which all of it sounds delicious and I want to try it. Yeah. Well, there's that scene where Richie brought the tripe over. Like I don't I don't eat tripe, but like that's not a food yeah. that a lot of Americans are eating. Well, Artie Artie serving the quail. Yeah. But even like the nicknames, if you think of it like B- Bobby Bacalieri, they'd call him Bobby Bacala. Bacala is food is a food. Like there's right. food in everything. They're always drinking espresso. Like that is a big part of like the cultural mm-hmm. identity, I feel like, in this show. It's a big marker of that. Um it also makes me and very hungry. <laughs> <laughs> and there and this is something I grew up with too, but like always wine with dinner, like that there's and I think that's Italian American also. That's or maybe European in general. Like my parents' families like always had wine at the table. Like that was just it's just how Europeans are. But let's talk about the character specifically and some of their arcs in these two seasons. First, I wanted to point out doing a little bit of research, and I know that you know much more about this than I do, Elise. 
almost all of these actors or most of these actors are Italian American. And that was very important to David Chase and the the casting directors. Do you have more information on that for us, Elise? I I just wanted to say that in addition to them being Italian, I think the fact that they also were mostly from like the New York, New Jersey area is something that is a big deal too. Like it helps with like the accents and, and that kind of thing. Like it, None of the accents feel fake to me because that's, they're all, a lot of them, I'm sure they're putting it on more than they would in normal speak. But yeah, like, James Gandolfini is from New Jersey. He went to Rutgers. I saw him at my sister's graduation. (laughs) Um, Steven Van Zandt grew up, like, 40 minutes from me. Lorraine Bracco is from New York. Edie Falco is from New York City. Michael Imperioli is from New York. It's just, they're all, I think, like, Jamie Lynn Sigler is Jewish and this goes on we always say this Jews and Italians can play each other it's fine <laughs> we have an understanding <laughs> I feel like there has been this wave of like prestige television after the Sopranos where you get people playing certain ethnicities with accents that aren't actually their accents and we like to joke that it's usually British people right British people coming in and playing a southern person or you know (laughs) uh because I think about the walking dead for an example with Andrew Lincoln or oh I haven't seen that but I believe uh Luca from the good fight she's actually British I didn't I don't think I even knew that there's so many of them in American television and and usually they get very praised for those performances because it's them like taking on this accent or taking on this like identity that's yeah. not theirs. And I'm not saying that that's wrong necessarily. I, I do not care if Andrew Lincoln wants to play a Georgia sheriff. Like That's not <laughs> yeah. something that bothers me. But and I, I don't want to use the word authentic because I think that's a very loaded word. Um, but it is interesting to me that they are using people for whom this is pretty much their natural accent or they grew up around people with these accents and they know the area and they know these conversations even if they're not you know mobsters (laughs) as it were because the show does not put the characters in it in a good light I think it's important to have actors be Italian American it has more of an impact for me And it comes off more of a self-reflection or a reflection of this specific society rather than a bad stereotype. And I think that is very important. Yeah, I I agree with you. I think that that's a really good point. Let's start with some of the main characters. Obviously, we've already started talking about Tony, who is the main character of the show. But we haven't talked about sort of the framing narrative of the show, which is that Tony has major anxiety depression season two starts to get into some more of his anger management issues as related to his depression and his anxiety but he has panic attacks which at the beginning of the show he is referred to a psychiatrist dr melfi because he his panic attacks cause him to pass out and there is no medical reason for him to pass out. It is a psychological reason. So a big part of this show is him going to therapy and talking out these issues with Dr. Melfi. I think that over the course of at least the first two seasons, Tony 
wants to fix the panic attacks. Like, he wants them to stop. And because of how taboo going to a psychiatrist is in, in his culture, I find it interesting that we start with him already, with his first appointment, rather than him grappling with whether or not to go, because I'm sure that was a big decision for him. But I also, like, don't feel like I need to have seen that. Um, It's like, let's just get into it. I do think that in his journey to find out what's going on, he does, you know, find out that a lot of what he's going through is because how, you know, how his family dynamic was growing up, how his mother treated him. But the one thing that I find more interesting than that almost is how he uses what he learns in therapy for his job. Or like yeah, how he, does. he uses what he learns in therapy. And then there are so many times where Melfi says something to him and then he says that to someone else like it's his idea. And that is one of my favorite traits of him because everyone does that shit. <laughs> you know, none of us are like 100% original in our ideas. So I just felt that feels very relatable. But I just think it's so interesting. Like he's there. He's supposed to be there to like be getting better. And I think that you know, he has ups and downs as anyone in in therapy has, but it is just so interesting to me that he takes so much of what he learns in therapy and uses it to his advantage in his his job. Tessa, you were just saying that earlier today. You pointed it out in a scene where it happened, watching him do this. And, And I have to say, I mean, like a lot of other shows, I've talked about this with The Good Wife, while acknowledging that the show is focused on Tony, I find him almost the least interesting. I, I love the characters that are in his orbit much more. But I do think the most interesting thing, and again, credit to you for actually pointing it out as it was happening, is that he is listening. You wouldn't know it in the moment, and I don't think Dr. Melfi actually knows whether he's picking it up or not, but we see him actually doing it. Can I ask what scene it was that Tessa pointed that out, if you recall? I think it was because it was when Janice and Richie, it was like during the engagement or something, and he said something about them having like attachment issues. Like I, I, I'm trying to remember, he uses, he, he starts, especially at the end of season one and the beginning of season two, he starts being able to use the vocabulary that she gives him specifically to identify things. Uh, sometimes correctly, sometimes incorrectly. Um, but but like there's also a scene, I think it, it's near the end of season one where he is talking to Christopher who's acting out because he wasn't recognized as part of the bigger like bust. Like nobody knew he was a mobster and he takes that personally, even though yeah, why would you want that kind depressed. of attention? <laughs> but there's a scene, he starts acting out and there's a scene between him and Tony in the car where Tony starts like he says something about killing himself and Tony starts being like, well, do you mean that? Like, are you depressed? And he starts listing out symptoms of depression. And of course, Christopher reacts in a very macho, like, I don't need I therapy. He specifically sort of says, way. I'm not a mental midget is what he exactly right. says, which is but, close. But the fact is, is that Tony, before he met Melfi, wouldn't be able to list those symptoms. He wouldn't have been able to like talk about depression in that way. He wouldn't be able to- Even if he did experience them himself, he wouldn't have recognized. Exactly. And so I do think he has a 
ability to reflect on himself and other people He's using the tools that he's getting from Melfi, right? It, also, his relationship with his son. You know, he's able to suddenly recognize that the reason why his son acts out is the same reason he acts out. And he's able to articulate that clearly to his son. I really like that that one scene where after he basically ridicules his son and he comes to apologize. I think that's towards the end of season two. He comes to apologize and it just feels so... Like, he's... He's taking responsibility. He's saying what I said was not wrong, was not right. And I I just, it was nice. I do want to talk about Jen Melfi too, because they have this really interesting relationship that starts getting developed and broadened throughout these two seasons. What do we think about her as a character and her relationship with Tony? I think that her relationship with Tony is extremely toxic for her. And... It's not that way at the start. I think it's almost interesting because one of her friends, who is his doctor, is the one that recommended her. I guess he she, he recommended a few doctors. And in her therapy with her therapist, Peter Bogdanovich, <laughs> um, <laughs> she's he's always saying like she's always saying she feels responsible for him. But like if that is true, then is Doctor Kusumano responsible for having like given this referral like it just feels like that she takes a lot on and I don't I'm not a doctor so I don't really under I don't really fully know where a psychiatrist's um responsibility ends but I do think as time goes on she's drinking between sessions when he's supposed to come see her like it's just very unhealthy for her all around by the way, I I do also want to point out the reality that most psychiatrists do not do talk therapy. I just want that to be very, very clear. The person who can prescribe medicine and actually talk to you about your problems is exceedingly rare. And if you find somebody like Jen Melfi, you never let her go. You treat her <laughs> right because you will never find that again. You will have to go to two doctors. Yeah, because I I get my antidepressant from my primary doctor, and when I am seeing a therapist, it's usually someone who is not able to prescribe medication. Part of it is because Tony is a very combative patient. Like, he is... The other thing we haven't mentioned is the fact that there is this taboo against seeing a psychiatrist, but also the fact that she's a woman makes it way worse um, for both him and for the people around him in terms of like thinking about gender roles. There is a very funny storyline. It's played for laughs in uh, season one about transference um, because this is very common with people with their therapists is that they think that they're in love with them or they think that like they have a special relationship, which is, I mean, because this person is the person who's listening to you talk. Right. And so you think it's very intimate. They're paying attention to what you're saying. And so it's very, I mean, Freud talks about this, the transference towards your therapist. You just don't realize it's one-sided. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're getting paid to do a job and people don't yeah. think about that. And, and you know, Jen is right that most pe- therapists have to work through that with their patients and you get to the other side and it's fine. But there is a lot of sexual tension between the two of them. But it's also very, I mean, Tony swears at her he yells at her one time he throws a table and like gets in her face Mm -hmm. like he is a very combative patient in a way that does make her feel frightened and it does affect their relationship however 
there is a connection between the two of them as well in terms of like they understand each other, I think, in ways that no one else in their immediate orbit does. Whether that's a good thing for either or both of them is something to be decided, I think. I actually find how their relationship develops in subsequent seasons way more interesting than this second season storyline. Like there's a there's a real turning point in their relationship that hasn't happened yet. I actually think David Chase chose wrong. I believe he chose incorrectly at a certain point. I don't know. I this is not a strong point of the first two seasons. I don't know that you know Chase isn't the only person doing this. You know, Terrence Winter's involved. Some of the other folks who come on later haven't come on yet, but it is very much David Chase's show. And I I don't think he's particularly interested in this. I think he's I think it's a fun idea for him, but I don't think he has the skill set to flesh it out. It, to me it's underbaked. It's pretty simplistic. I I don't know. I do think Lorraine Bracco's bringing a lot. Well, yes, here. but that's just Lorraine Bracco. Right. And I, I did know this before you put it in the notes, Elise, the idea that she didn't want to do another mob thing after Goodfellas. Uh, but yeah. apparently she was offered the role of Carmela first, and she said she wanted to play Melfi instead because it was more... It was a different type of character. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, a mobster's wife. I think to speak to Sam's point about it being simplistic. I don't disagree with that. And if nothing else, it shows how the people that are around Tony Soprano crumble. That's it. Yeah. There's so many people in his life that are, like, fall apart because of things. Because of his inability to to deal with his issues. Yeah. As you said, there are three main women in his life. And... Carmela is, of course, played by Edie Falco. She, I think, out of all of the women in these first two seasons, anyway, is given the most to do um, and is given the most time. I would die for her. (laughs) (laughs) I've been reading slowly. Uh, I've read um, Alan Suppenwall's book about... um, the Sopranos, which I realized this week I only had on audiobook. I was looking furiously around my house to like re up and look, and I was like, oh, I don't think I have that. But I also have a book that Michael Imperioli and Steve Sharippa, who plays um, Christopher Moltisanti and uh, St- and uh, Bobby Bac- Bacala, they had a podcast recently where they did like a recap, kind of like what I do with pod, pod rates, except they were able to get on um, guests that are uh, I was gonna worked say, on the show, are, obviously. Were you on Deep Space Nine? <laughs> I didn't know Maybe. that. Like, is that a secret? Um, are you breaking news? Don't don't tell anyone. Well, you're the one who said it. <laughs> I know. <laughs> so I was reading... Earlier today, they were interviewing Edie Falco, and one of the things that was really fun for her in this role is Carmela is so different from her. Like, Edie Falco does not cook. She doesn't do the nails. She doesn't do the hair. She's just, like, seems very down to earth to me. So it was a lot of fun for her. I think eventually it was, like, the hair and makeup maybe got a little annoying down eventually, but she really enjoyed being able to play this character that was so different from her. And we've hinted, we've talked about this already, but one of Carmela's main 
things is having to decide between or she's grappling between her love for Tony on one hand and morality, which for her is the church for the most part, on the other side. So she she knows what he's doing is wrong, but she also she does love him and she loves having a really nice house and she loves being able to not have a job and she loves being taken care of. I do think she wants a little bit more security than that and that's part of what she's grappling with. On the other hand, I think she's more like Tony than she wants to believe. She also manipulates people. You know, she she tried to make Artie's wife, her friend, her old friend Charmaine feel like she was back in the in the crew when she moved to the neighborhood, but then she just hired her for catering. Right. She awkwardly went <laughs> to ask her neighbors if her sister would write a Georgetown recommendation. She basically threatened this woman who worked at Georgetown to write a recommendation for Meadow. And good for brought her. Brought her pie. <laughs> so it's like she does, in her own way, act like Tony does, just about different topics, I would say. I mean, Carmela is really grappling with what it with gender expression and domesticity, right? You said this, Elise. You said that you thought about the fact that, like, they've been married for most of their adult lives. Yeah, so Tony is supposed to be, like, 39, I think, in season one, and they go out for their 18th wedding anniversary. That is a long marriage. That's your whole adulthood, basically. And sometimes I think, and I, I want Sam to comment on this, sometimes I think Carmela is struggling with the fact that this is what she thought life should be like, but it is supremely unsatisfying for her, um, which it is for a lot of women who are in these types of domestic relationships. It's your old buddy, Sam, co-host of Monkey Off My Backlog. I grew up in the 80s. <laughs> and uh, I'm, just, I'm just old enough to, to, to have realized somewhere in the mid to late 80s what women wore, what suburban white women specifically wore, you know, the, the mom jeans, right? The 80s were, were big for high waist, <laughs> you know, which initially I was, when they came back, I was like, oh no, please don't. This is too Freudian for me. I figured it out eventually. But they got married around 82 is how the timeline would just about work out. Maybe a little earlier, maybe closer to 80. Anyway, the point is, Carmela became a, a housewife in the 80s. She is still there. Yeah. That is, that is I, I want you to take a minute and soak that in and understand that the reality is that Carmela Soprano is an 80s housewife at the end of the 90s. And if you think about that as the single motivation for her character, everything she says, does, and acts like will make sense. Yeah, I think it's also very interesting that Meadow is about to go off to college, which implies that She's about as old as their marriage is. Like they either yep. got married and had kids or right away older. or got married because or you know, uh she was pregnant. And so that that's a big deal. Like if your identity is really tied up in this gender expression of motherhood and domesticity and suddenly, you know, you're 18 years later and you realize this is, does not make me happy. Like this is this is not who I wanted to be. That's a lot for a character and I think Carmela is grappling with that. And she even kind of starts to say that a lot when she she's talking to the priest that she has the weird psychosexual relationship with <laughs> in season one. Father Intentola, yes. 
where she says like, you know, I didn't mind the gumas because I was so tired all the time. And women who don't have help in that domestic sphere are often talk like that, you know, like I'm just tired all the time. Mm-hmm. And so it is yeah. interesting that she kind of sees her identity tied up with that, but she's not satisfied with that identity. So that's a lot of... And I get the impression that part of her not having help is the fact that her mother-in-law basically drove her parents away from from mm-hmm. her. Um, we see as they spend less time with Tony's mother that her parents are coming around a little bit more. And you get the impression that that hasn't been happening for the last bunch of years. I yeah. mean, she's a woman that knows her husband cheats on her. And she, I also think part of her just wants to feel, just wants attention from Tony. She just wants to feel loved. And she says this at one point, like, she's a little bit jealous of Dr. Melfi. Not in, like, I don't, I honestly, I mean, she was pissed at first when Tony didn't tell her that Jennifer was a woman. But I think she really is just jealous that she's not able to be the person that he comes and talks to about things. And I think that's a common feeling amongst partners that where someone goes to therapy. I think that's a very normal feeling. But it's just interesting to see it on screen because I don't think it always is shown or gets handled like it's in a good way. They make people act create like really out of character and I think she just says it and I just I appreciate that she's someone who not always right away but eventually we'll we'll say how she feels Tessa we were talking the other day about Edie Falco and her current project and I was like I can't remember what that was that what is it that Edie Falco's she's doing like some like uh niche Little known indie project? What what is Edie Falco doing? Like, <laughs> oh, Edie Falco was just in Avatar: The Way of Water as the primary antagonist, which I think is hilarious. I'm not. I'm still not convinced that movie's real. We haven't seen it yet. So, I've saw the movie, and this has nothing to do with the movie. But did you see her um her comments on it? Yes. yes. <laughs> she was like, "Oh, I did that four years ago. I thought it flopped because I hadn't heard anything about it since." <laughs> Which is great. Legend. No notes. Let's talk about Livia, who is the other major influence in in Tony's life. So Livia is obviously his mother who overshadows everything. My grandmother, by the way, my, my dad's mom was five tenths. So like, you know, dad dad and I are both well, I was until I started going in the opposite direction. And so did he, but he was it was because he was old. We were both six <laughs> one at one point in our lives. We were the only people in the family, and it's a big family, as you know. Now actually my cousin is actually but but most people were shorter than her. And if you weren't literally shorter than her, you were figuratively. <laughs> and very not like Livia, but very much clearly the head of the family. And I really enjoy it because I'm pretty sure the actor who plays Livia is shorter than James Gandolfini, but you wouldn't know it no. when, when yeah, they're in you, scenes together. And that's, that's, mm-hmm, that's totally. I think that's it. That's what you really need to know about, about this character and how domineering she is. And yeah, she has borderline personality disorder. I believe it. That does not mean you don't have any empathy, Jennifer Melfi. But it does signify something. 
I think that she's a very dangerous person. Um, she's queen of manip- manipulation. I do think she's very smart. Um, she plays up her dementia when she um, thinks, oh, wait, I'm going to get like in trouble for trying to have my son murdered. Let me pretend I don't know anything. I have a granddaughter? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was <laughs> David Chase said that she was actually like one of the hardest characters to cast because a lot of actors were coming in and doing this like big crazy italian mama thing that's that was a quote from the michael imperioli steve sheriffo um book but nancy uh marchand who's the actor that plays livia just came in and like hit hit the lines in a way that made david chase think about his own mother which basically is the you know what this character is based on and he immediately was like okay it's her but the funny thing is, is later, Nancy Marchand asked David Chase, I, um, I just want to check that the person I'm playing is dead now. Like, she didn't want, she knew it was such a horrible portrayal of this woman that she was like, I just needed to make sure that the person was actually not alive anymore <laughs> so she wouldn't offend them, <laughs> which I thought was very funny. Let's talk a little bit about Meadow and AJ, um, his two children, Anthony Jr. and Meadow. You've already spoken a little bit about uh, Jamie Lynn Sigler's character and her performance. What do we think about Meadow and AJ as Tony's children and their arcs in this show so far? I really thought the scene where AJ calls out his dad for eating giant bowls of ice cream. I really thought that came sooner. I thought we were going to see that, and we didn't. His character really doesn't develop much until later. These fo- The focus here is much more on Meadow, you know, until she goes to college. And by the way, The Sopranos Entourage crossover is epic. It's great. It's not real, but it's great. It's really interesting how both of these characters develop. And I really think that doesn't pay off in the first two seasons. Again, this is establishing characters and then, in Meadow's case, expanding them. I think it's an interesting idea. The show's not about this. This is this is David Chase doing too many things and not doing some of them very well. But the idea that mobsters have kids and the kids who are growing up at this time period, more likely than not, won't be in the family. What does it mean to grow up? I don't think Tony this... wants them to be. I don't. Well, I no, think and Tony she doesn't want to be as... either. But yeah. what does it mean? Is it fair that Carmela is able to exert influence because she's a member of this family to get, you know, Meadow into Georgetown? Although she doesn't get in, so you know, it. These are interesting questions that David Chase doesn't have the time, or that really, I think the the desire to look through, but they're interesting. I liked that Tony claims Meadow as like, she. he's like, there's a lot of me in you. And I think that that's true because even though Meadow doesn't have Tony's issues in terms of like psychological issues, because she didn't grow up the same way Tony did. And even though she doesn't have a place in the family, clearly doesn't want to be part of the family. She has a lot of that intelligence and that like savvy that that Tony has. And she does react to things in similar ways, but just in a different, completely different context, if that makes sense. And so 
she it's very interesting to see this performance uh, by her. And a lot of it, like you said, is her trying to figure out how someone with this background can relate someone that the person that she's becoming, right. The person who's educated, who wants to have a career, who wants to move on, you know, from this life, how that person can have a relationship with her father who is trapped by the family and by, you know, his childhood and and all of that stuff. Because a lot of it is stuff like her asking, like, why did you drop out of college? You know, why did you, you know, like it's very much like this sort of like, how do I have a relationship with this person? you know, who I, I fundamentally don't agree with, but, you know, I love. And I think that that's a lot of this character's arc, especially in the second season. I will say, though, that AJ rebelling against his parents through existentialism is one of the funniest things. The D-Girl episode of season two might be my favorite episode, despite the fact that there's a very violent transphobic story um, that's told by one of the characters in it, which I hated. But the rest of the episode is great. But AJ talking about existentialism after having read Camus' The Stranger for the first time and being like, have you ever thought about why we're here? And then Nietzsche, too. Yeah, Nietzsche. Um, (laughs) And and Meadows saying, you wanted him to be educated. This is education is one of my it's just such a great like family scene. And then Melfi saying like, oh, it seems like he stumbled on existentialism. And Tony saying, fucking Internet. Is like one of my <laughs> like it is one of my favorite lines of the whole show. Well, I'm excited to tell you that there are other storylines in the future that are involved with um, AJ's school and like how his <laughs> parents um, react to it. There's one in specific that I'm thinking of, but I, I don't remember if it's in season. I think it's in season three because Meadows in college at that point. I think there's an interesting. I mean, both of the kids find out in. In, I mean, Meadow suspects, obviously, but like both of the kids find out that what their parents were, what their dad's doing. So there's a lot of discovery. I laugh at the way that that like mob website looks like that, <laughs> that Meadow showed her brother, like the flash or whatever. But as Sam said, I don't think that I think this is the very beginning of their arc and they haven't really fleshed it out completely. I want to talk about two other people um, as we before we wrap up the show. One is, of course, Christopher, um, who is played by Michael Imperioli, as you mentioned. Elise, why is Christopher the best character in the show, considering the fact he has no redeeming qualities whatsoever? Like, I'm asking you legitimately because I don't understand no, no, why no. he is the best character I know. in the show. He's, I love he him is so the best much. Character. I think. <sighs> okay. Is this where I go on my Christopher Montesanti's like Anakin Skywalker um, conversation? Of course, yes. I think it is. So unlike Meadow and AJ, Christopher is a little bit older than them. So he is in the life and probably there was, he, you know, his dad died when he was young. His mom seems to be pretty absent. It almost feels like he didn't have a choice in what he's doing. But he has all these visions of he wants to be a screenwriter. He wa- he basically wants to be Marty Scorsese is, is what I'm ga- gathering from this. And because he's like, you know, he's like this Gen X person that wants to do their own thing. I don't know why I said Gen X. I don't have anything to comment on that specifically. <laughs> he has to figure out where his loyalties lie. And he and I find that interesting 
But the reason why he's Anakin Skywalker is because he is angry that he's not already a made guy. That, as Sam said before, I think it was Sam, he doesn't... He hasn't get he isn't getting the recognition he thinks that he deserves, and that felt very like Anakin not getting into the um, <laughs> not becoming a Jedi Master when he was put on the Council and all of that stuff. The difference obviously is that Christopher doesn't have to um, repress his emotions, which and does often not. leads to <laughs> and does not, which often leads to him being quite violent towards his girlfriend and other people um, who's. Yes, Adriana is also my other like favorite. Like I just, I they're to- they're like sometimes I find them cute and like some and I hate myself a little bit during those times. But I definitely love both of them so much. He's just so ignorant and hot headed that it's funny, and I think that is the uh, reason why he's the best character. That's all. You know, another way he's like Anakin Skywalker. He does the most atrocious thing in the entire franchise. We haven't seen it yet. Oh, okay. It's, I was about to say, what am uh, I supposed to know? You like, will know it when you... Fair. I just, when it happens. I don't understand, but every single episode where he is majorly featured is, like, my favorite episode. And again, like, I... He's not... I. It has to be that he's a hot dummy. Like, that That has well, to be what so, it is. He is... No, it's true. He is... I find him very attractive, and I think... Michael Imperioli is just an excellent actor also. There's so much nuance in the way he acts. Like sometimes he's smart and he says stuff, but like some but like usually it's an accident that he says something. Yeah, when he says something the right way. Yeah, it's like he has to do the wrong thing before he realizes what the right thing is half the time. And yeah. the two, I mean, the girl and then the episode before it, which I don't remember, but where he goes to the actor, the the actor's workshop for writers episode yeah. are just excellent character work on his part. I also loved, because John Favreau is in this show as himself in the D-Girl, um, and I love the scene where they're trying to direct Janine Garofalo and I don't remember the other <laughs> actor's name. And, Sandra Bernhardt. Yeah, and she's like, do I, oh, bitch is the wrong word, and Christopher <laughs> gives them the Italian word that basically means cunt. We are, yes. of course, really testing was... our lack of family friendliness on the show now. <laughs> I, think, I think the word was like pukiak or something like yeah, that. And I didn't I, pronounce it That correctly. whole sequence is hilarious where he's like, oh, he called, she could call him or this. They're from like, Brooklyn. This is what they This would is what say. they would say. Yeah. And like, he is actually really smart when it comes to storytelling, but he has all these blocks that come from his upbringing yeah. and from the constraints of masculinity. I would hate myself if I didn't mention that um, the woman that plays the redhead in D-Girl, whose name, was it Allison? I don't remember what her character's name was, but she played little Aaliyah in um, David in oh, David's wow. Dune. Yeah, I thought she <laughs> yeah. looked familiar, but I don't know if it's from that. It might have been from something else, but yeah. Probably she's... not, because she had those creepy blue eyes. Yeah. But yeah, that was the same actor. That's so interesting. I love that. We have to talk about Janice. No conversation. Do we? Do we have to? Yes. I, I feel like that yes. should be the name of her spinoff show. We have to talk about Janice. <laughs> Tell me about Janice, Elise. <sighs> I hate that I feel like I see myself in Janice sometimes. Like, she sucks. <laughs> Janice is the black sheep of the family that escaped to Seattle to be away from everyone, which I find interesting to mm-hmm. me. Like The road less traveled. 
Yeah. <laughs> she she changed her name in 1978 to Pavardi, and I do think it's funny that only AJ is the AJ is the only person that consistently calls her Pavardi, which I love. I think that makes AJ a sweetheart at this point. And it's funny to me, like, the longer she's in New Jersey, the more she becomes Janice again. And the fact that she uses even the word name Jan in that one scene when they're at that, like, thing for all the garbage people. That, like, ball or whatever. <laughs> garbage ball or whatever they the call it. Garbage ball. You sound the like Richie ball. right I there. <laughs> I know. I forget what he, he said. I, I'm, I'm trying to quote him. I don't remember what he called it. Yeah, so over time, the longer she is there, the more she is, you know, you see her in that one scene and she has the sweater over her shoulders and she's dressed just like Carmela. When we saw her at the beginning of the season, she was very bohemian. It's really funny because regardless of how she's dressed, she is basically a con artist she's always scamming someone you know i'm not trying to say that she doesn't have carpal tunnel syndrome but i am saying that she probably can work just fine she also is the type of person that changes her how like she she's really good at like i don't want to call it code switching because i don't think it's that but like she'll be a different person depending on what room she's in in a way that I believe a little bit of it, each one of those people is her, but it also feels like she's always putting on a show. Like, she's not necessarily being true to herself at at all times. And she has a lot of opinions on things that she doesn't know anything about, and that is something that I also do. <laughs> Janice sucks, but I love her, and Ada Totoro is amazing, and I... Love her Rolling Stones tattoo. Yeah, I mean, that's the best thing to say about her is that she's amazing in this role because I hate her so much. (laughs) We only really get to see her in one storyline this season, but I will say uh, kind of starting to think about like the, the show as a whole. I don't like her as a character, which probably makes her a good character in the show in terms of like, you know, the, the work that's being done here. I think you're absolutely yeah. right, Elise, in terms of, like, she... And you can see it when she switches, like, into a different personality. You can see it, like, yep. happen in real time. And I think a lot of that is a defense mechanism from her childhood, having to oh, deal totally. with Livia. Like, um, she has... Mm-hmm. She's she's had to deal with Livia the same way Tony has, and she sees it this way. I do think it's also interesting that Uncle June is the one... It seems to be the only one who like has her number because he's like, you know, oh, I, yeah. she, when she was 10 years old, I would leave the house and my li- wallet would be lighter. Like that is his way yeah. of saying like, she's always been this way. Yep. However, I wasn't sure until about halfway through season two, if I was going to keep watching the show, like I thought it was good, but I was just kind of like, you know, this is like Mad Men or something else. Like, it's just like, it's a good drama, but it's not really what I'm into. Between right. the double part, like the two episodes with Christopher, the girl and the other one again, whose name I can't remember, and the end of her storyline with Richie um, in season two, I was like, okay, like, this is interesting. Like, this is very interesting because, yeah, I literally said when he punched her and and 
Sam was like, oh, well, Tony has to kill him now, her, him now. And I was like, if she doesn't first. And then she brought in the gun and just like immediately killed him. I was like, yeah. okay. Like I wasn't expecting this. Like really? I wanted it to happen that way, but I wasn't expecting it. Yeah. And now I'm like, I'm sold. Like I want to know more if yeah. the show is going to do more stuff like that. And so, yeah, I, again, I don't like her as a character, but she has some of the more interesting things to do in this season. I wonder how Tony must have been so happy that he didn't have to do have Richie to kill him. Anymore. Yeah. Before we move into the last part of the thing, real quick shout outs to Polly Walnuts, Uncle Pussy, Silvio, his real life wife plays his wife on the show. And yep. I like I applaud that man like that. I don't know how he got a wife that hot either in the show or in real life, but like he must be like he must have <laughs> some game or be like, I don't know. But like she is very hot. And Richie, of course, who, again, um, is kind of the villain of season two, um, but he does some very good work as the, the antagonist. I love the whole storyline with Richie's that old, that leather jacket. It's just you, he came back from prison and things were not as he expected. Really quick, though, who's your favorite uh, Tony Soprano compatriot in the family? And Adriana doesn't count. No, no. I meant like of that inner circle. Oh, oh, I... I mean, Silvio, clearly, but I have to tell you, Polly Walnuts is the MVP. That guy does it. He does what he's, th- he followed the prompt more than anybody else in that family, but it's Silvio. <laughs> Elise? For me, it's Polly. I love to, I love to hate Polly Walnuts, like. It's similar to how you describe Janice. Like, he's such a good character, but I, like, can't stay. Like, he's horrible. But he's so nice to Carla from Scrubs. Yeah. yeah I know. And I her love, kids. I it. And like, her children. Yeah, he, like, he takes them, them back to bed. To bed. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> I love that. Anyway, I was wondering how if is you that were going to comment person? on the fact that this, I love that she's, like, three o'clock. <laughs> we, got, we got stuck at this other place at three o'clock, like. Such nonsense. I'm being haunted by ghouls. I have a whole pack of ghouls following me around. If I'm being honest, I love all of them. Yeah, they're great. no characters on the show right now that I don't love. I want to say it's like either the third from the last episode in season two or or the penultimate episode where his lawyer tries to get Tony to like be more legitimate and to insulate himself from the business by hanging out at the mm-hmm. the garbage, the waste disposal yeah. company office. But <laughs> he gets so bored and sad, and, and then he, he realizes it's because he's not with his friends. Like that's the that's why Tony loves. I think that's why he got that rash. Yeah, he couldn't be with his friends, his best friends, and like to me, that's why Tony wants to be part of it like even with all the stuff that makes him depressed even with all the self-destructive behavior it's because that's what his best friends do and he gets to hang out with them and like have dinner and yeah it's that's why at least he got to bang that born again christian assistant lady (laughs) (laughs) yeah he did all right so we asked this question last week with the godfather so i have to ask it this week too we asked if michael corleone is a bad person does this show want us to think that Tony Soprano is a bad person? Elise, what is your thoughts on this? I have a really hard time. Well, before, I guess nothing, nothing's easy. Um, in general, I have a really hard time calling people bad. Obviously, there are exceptions to that. Where were you last week? <laughs> but for 
for me, it's more like, do you mostly act bad or act good? Like it's, there's, it, there's nuance there. Like I don't think, so yes, he's a, he's a loving father and sometimes he's a loving husband, but he makes his living on manipulating and exploiting almost everyone that he comes across. He sees your weakness and figures out how to benefit from that. I do think he tries to do good sometimes, but it usually doesn't work out. For example, everything that happened with, like, Artie's restaurant in the in the first beginning of the show, you know, he finds out that his uncle is going to hit, uh, put a hit on Pussy Malanga, not Big Pussy, not his pussy. Um, <laughs> so instead of, like, figuring it out, like, I feel like he could have very easily have been like, hey, Artie, like, close your restaurant for a little bit without going into too much detail. He could have convinced him. But instead, he decides that it's a better idea to uh, blow up the restaurant and set a fire. And then later in season two, with his other childhood friend, um, I forget the guy's name, but the guy that runs Ramsey Outdoor, he tries to get the that T-1000. guy not to join. <laughs> oh, thank you. I get that reference because I finally watched Terminator last year. <laughs> he tries to tell him, like, this poker game's not for you, but he, he could have... The way that Tony threatens some people, he could have stopped both of those things from being problems, but he, it's his friend and he's like, okay, fine. You know, he, he, so part of me in the back of my mind wonders if Tony knew that this is how this is, especially the later situation with the um, sporting goods store. Like if he, if he was like, okay, well, and then eventually I'm going to have to bust out your store. Like he, I feel like his mind works that far in advance i don't know because he says like why did you let me and he says i saw your weakness and i exploited it and he uses my least favorite aesop fable reference which is scorpion and the frog which i think is overused quite a bit but it's the idea of like this is just who i am it's in my nature sam is tony a bad person i regret asking this question about michael last week (laughs) i I had to ask it of you because you asked it of me so here's the thing we astonishingly live in a time of no nuance. People are good or people are evil. And if you do one wrong thing, you're over on the evil side. And on top of that, we have a scale of evil. You go evil as soon as you do one thing wrong. I don't like that. We also have so many people right now, some of whom get to be legislators, who are all the way at 11 evil. And we we know that. We see it. They do whatever they want, and there's no, there's no consequence. Cancel culture isn't real, unless you are somebody without the clout to just ignore it, you know. And so, is Tony a bad person? That is not for me to decide. That is for Carmela. <laughs> who is, is Michael a bad person? That's for his wife to decide, right? These are people who do good things and do bad things, and as you said, Elise, and it's, it's, it's more complicated than that. Like, well, is, then why'd is, you ask the question last I, week? <laughs> I said I was sorry I asked it. Well, is Tony Soprano a bad person? If you compare him to Marjorie Taylor Greene, no, he's not. I do like how he was like, I'm not going to hell. Like, that's for really bad people. I, and you know what? Yeah. I agree with him. When yeah. I heard that, I was like, that's right. Matt Gates is going to hell. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was like... Yeah, he's not like a child raper, so sure, he's not going to hell. Like, he he had me, too. Yeah. His name is not Michael Bobert. 
I'm sorry. Like I said, I or should Hit- never have asked Adolf that question. Hitler. Yeah, he was just, he was very, very concerned about that. To wrap up our mob duology, which is what we have done over the past two weeks, I wanted to kind of broaden this out. Why do we think that mob stories like this are so enduringly popular? I mean, like, we basically talked about two texts that are 30 years apart from each other, and they're still as celebrated, both, you know, in film culture and, I mean, you just, you said at the beginning of the episode, Sam, like, watching The Godfather yeah. is like watching film history, well, and watching The Sopranos is like watching television history. Okay. I'm I'm going to short circuit your question and say there is an answer. Okay. Francis Ford Coppola, Martin Scorsese. Okay. It's, it's. It, it, the thing about it is, these people existed, these stories existed. Would they be the cultural juggernaut that they are without those two men? The answer is no. Now, somebody if it wasn't for them, somebody else might have done it. But the problem is, people like the three of us, who all exist after The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two, you cannot possibly answer that question any other way. Because for us, there is no other answer. And and sure, David Chase. I said that last week. I said it's really those three guys. Elise, why do you think mob stories are so enduringly popular? So one thing I've been thinking about this week in specific, because I was having a a little crisis of my own on, uh, not to get too into that, about like, what am I doing with podcasting in general? <laughs> so I was, I was talking to Colby about this, actually, and... He asked me, like, well, what do you find interesting about storytelling in general? And then I was like, oh, that's easy. So then this is my answer here. I am very interested in why people do what they do. Character motivation is something that is very interesting to me. So the reason why a mob story would be so interesting to me is because the societal rules are different than the society rules that I live in. So watching people... And seeing their motivations within a different societal norm is just very interesting because I don't know what my choices would be if I had to live in that situation. So I just think the why people act the way they do part is what's important to me. And it's the mob part is the, okay, they're they're in a different situation than I'm in. So it's just, I just like watching characters and finding out why they do things and this show analyzes that a lot yeah i've seen analyze this i know what's gonna happen (laughs) i will say that i have enjoyed these two things a lot more than i thought that i would um i think that i will probably continue watching the sopranos um especially because i've been told that it becomes as you both have kind of alluded to and other people have alluded to it kind of becomes a different thing eventually which i'm very interested in seeing where that goes but I, I am glad that I watched them. I did find them a lot more dynamic than I thought that they were going to be and a lot more nuanced than I thought that they were going to be. But I also think that mob stories like Westerns, I think they are kind of an American institution, right? I mean, like the mafia exists in Italy. Um, that, is, that is where the American mob comes from. But like, it's different, right? It's, it's a very different kind of context. There are different social rules. And so I do think that that is a very interesting way of talking about American cinema and like where that comes from. And a lot of that comes from uh, people like Scorsese and Coppola, as you mentioned. So I think that that's a very interesting point. 
one thing I really enjoy is that it was such a big hit that they were able to get like some fun cameos and stuff in season two, like Frank Sinatra Jr. And that is something that continues to happen throughout the show, which I think is really fun. Lauren Bacall's like in a later episode, right? Like that shocked um, me. Yes. And it will shock you even more once you watch that okay. episode. Fair, fair. <laughs> All right, so that wraps up our mob duology for the beginning of the year 2023. Next week, we are going to experience another British invasion because Lazzie is going to come on to teach us about the basics of British girl pop groups. So listen next week to learn more about that. This will be a fun episode that I demanded. Yeah, yeah, I will. (laughs) You were like, please, let's do it. All right. Elise, where can people find you online and in their headphones? Yes, you can find me on Twitter, Letterboxd, and Storygraph at chicken double underscore tendy. Tendy is T-E-N-D-I. You can find Matt and myself um, on our Deep Space Nine rewatch podcast, Pod Rates, on Twitter and Instagram at Pod Rates, P-O-D-W-R-A-I-T-H-S. Sam, where can people find you online? You can find me on Twitter at Sam underscore Morris 9 and on Storygraph and Letterboxd at Melody Valentine. You can also find both Sam and I have written quite a bit for Movie John recently. Um, When this episode comes out, there should be an article from me on my column, Artificial Bodies, Artificial Lives, where I talk about Metropolis. Uh, You can also find me online on Twitter, Storygraph and Letterboxd at The By Paradox. You can also find me on my other podcast, Nanny Ogg's Book Club, where my friend Nigel and I are talking about all of Terry Pratchett's Discworld novels. You can find that on Twitter at Nanny's Book Club and on Instagram at Nanny Ogg's Book Club. We'd like to know your thoughts about The Sopranos or what you'd like for us to talk about on future episodes. You can find us on Twitter at Monkey Backlog. You can also find our link to our Discord community, both in our Twitter bio and in the notes for this episode. You can email us at monkeyoffmybacklog at gmail.com. Please take a moment to rate or review our show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Get that monkey off your back.